0: This is God's word. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow." of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it, You will not be pleased in a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good in Zion, in in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. Let's pray. Holy Father, we come before you. We need your word this morning. Our Lord Jesus taught us that man does not live by bread alone, by what they had for breakfast this morning, or they'll have for lunch this afternoon, but we live by every word that comes from your mouth, including these words. And so help us this morning to humble ourselves under your word, and be teachable by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. I once heard a guy say that many people go through life with a soundtrack in their mind. They hear songs in their mind as they go through life. Song, when, when they're in certain situations, a song that strikes up a memory comes to their mind. Is that, does that describe you? might describe some in this room, maybe, maybe many of us. Well, this psalm, Psalm 51, was part of the soundtrack in God's people from the time it was written. A few years ago, I read uh, an essay written by J.C. Ryle, where it it was entitled, Why the English Reformers Were Burned, and it goes through the story of many reformers in the land of England that were burned at the stake for their confession of christ and their confession of protestant doctrine and theology and their rejection of roman catholicism and it was fascinating several of these men that went to the stake to be burned were reciting psalm 51 on the way there's this young 17 year old girl during that time going to have her head cut off for her faith in Christ, for her commitment to Jesus and her rejection of the Pope. She's she's reciting Psalm 51. Psalm 51. One person called Psalm 51 the martyr's psalm. But the martyrs in England and around the world are not the only ones that adore this psalm. Athanasius, an early church father, once recommended that Christians, if they wake up in the middle of the night, Recite Psalm 51. Martin Luther once claimed "There is no other psalm more often sung or prayed in the church than Psalm 51." Now that's probably not true now. Right? Psalm 23. Others. Psalm 150. Martin Luther said, "At that time, anyways, there is no other psalm more, sung, psalm more sung or prayed in the church." A lesser-known Protestant reformer named Victor Striggle said of Psalm 51, he said, this psalm is the brightest gem in the whole book. He goes on to say, the tongue of angels could not do justice to the full development of it. It contains instruction so large and doctrine so precious. Charles Spurgeon said, this psalm is a matchless psalm well-suited for individuals as well as assemblies of the poor in spirit. Remember when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Psalm 51 brings together the painful reality of the depth of human sin and the wonder of divine mercy the depth of human sin and the wonder, the glory of God's mercy for the undeserving. Psalm 51, of course, comes to us in the form of a lament. It's a psalm of repentance. It's a psalm of confession. In fact, as I read it, I wonder how many here thought, what does this have to do with me? If you know the backstory of the psalm, King King David wrote it. King David had fallen into a place of gross sin and negligence. He was not walking with God. He had had an, an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. He had fathered a child with her. He had conspired to have her husband killed. And he went on for about a year as though nothing really happened. And the prophet Nathan came to him and confronted him of his sin and the Spirit of God convicted him and this is the psalm that is the outcome of that encounter with the prophet Nathan. This psalm is the result of the Lord's dealings with David in his sin. You might think, well, what does this have to do with me? This psalm is for someone who's really blown it. And of course it is. But it's not just for that person. I want to suggest it's for every one of us here. I want to suggest it could have the same effect upon us that it had upon those English reformers. They loved it so much that as they marched to their death, they recited it. I thought about that. What scripture would I want coming to my mind if I had one hour to live? For them, it was a no brainer. It was Psalm 51. There are some here, maybe some watching via the live stream, who have a woefully shallow and inadequate view of sin. And this psalm is for you. There are some who have a really small view of God's mercy. And this psalm is for you as well. There are some here, or maybe watching, who think they are too holy, too mature, too committed to really blow it like David and this psalm is for you. There are others who have fallen headlong into egregious sin. Maybe you have. Fallen headlong into it. You have been devoured by it, or so you think, and you wonder if there's any hope for you. If you can be forgiven, if you could ever be useful to God again, this psalm is for you. There are others who simply know the daily battle of sin. Hopefully all of us know that. Just the daily battle against sin. This psalm is for you. The issue is not whether Christians sin or not. We do. The issue is whether we have made peace with and cherish our sins or whether we hate and forsake them. A 19th century Scottish minister named William Arnott said this, the difference between a converted person and an unconverted person is not that one sins and the other doesn't, but that one takes part in his cherished sins against a dreaded God, and the other takes part with a reconciled God against his hated sins. David teaches us how to do that in, this te- in, the, in Psalm 51. So I hope you see this psalm is not for somebody else. It is for somebody else. <laughs> it's not just for somebody else. This psalm is for you. It's for you, it's for me, and it helps us understand what true and genuine repentance is. I remember, it's been some time ago, maybe, maybe 10 years ago, I, I, I read Martin Luther say, I read just a short phrase of, of something he said. He said, all of life for the Christian is repentance. And when I first heard that, I said, that's not true. But then I understood what he meant by that. It's actually, it was the first of his 95 theses that he nailed to the, to the Wittenberg Castle door that sparked the Protestant Reformation. And he said, when, when our Lord Jesus said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, when he said, repent, he wanted the entire life of believers to be one of repentance, one of turning from sin, and worldliness and temptation and turning to Christ over and over, a daily thing that we do. I think at the time I had thought of repentance as this one-time thing that you do at the beginning of your faith in Christ, and then you move on from there. So what can David, a man after God's own heart, teach us about true and genuine? Repentance. Well, let's dive into Psalm 51 because it really helps us. And, and there's four things David, David's encounter, David's experience shows us about repentance, true repentance as Christians. First, David appeals to God's mercy. Second, David is brutally honest about his own sin. Third, David pleads for certain effects of God's mercy. And fourth, David gladly resolves to obey. So, let's dive in. Before we we dive in, I just want to say, before I go further, this, Psalm 51, and this idea of confession and repentance, honesty before God, might be the missing ingredient for a deep work of God's renewal in your life or in our life as a body of, of believers. I want you to consider let's, let's be humble and bow low before the Lord and His word. Amen? So, number one, repentance is appealing starts with appealing to the love and mercy of God. We see that in verse one. David does not appeal to God's justice for obvious reasons, right? If he says, oh God, in your justice, God would say, okay, you want justice? You're dead, right? He appeals to God's mercy. He doesn't appeal to his own goodness. He doesn't appeal to his sincerity, he doesn't even appeal to a zealous kind of promise to pay God back or to do better. He appeals to the love and mercy of God. It's amazing. True repentance appeals to God's mercy. Look at 2 Freight, look at verse 1. It's the whole verse. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. So first he asks for mercy. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Steadfast love, the the Hebrew word kesed, is so rich. If you have the NASB, it might say loving kindness or... um, I think the NIV says just mercy or tender mercies. Unfailing love, okay, unfailing love. The idea is that God's love is faithful, it's covenantal, it's unstoppable, it's always pursuing, it's never-ending, it's unfailing. And it's for undeserving people. Psalm 23, verse 6 David again says, surely goodness and steadfast love, Keset, surely goodness and love, loving kindness, shall follow me all the days of my life, shall pursue me all of my days. And that's the kind of love David appeals to. That's the kind of love he needs because he's blown it. He needs the kind of love that will pursue him, that will go after him, that will be faithful, that will be unstoppable, that, will, that is rooted in covenant relationship. David doesn't say, hey, it's me, David, the man after your own heart. Have mercy on me. He says, have mercy on me according to your steadfast love. The next phrase is so sweet, according to your abundant mercy. When you think of God's mercy, do you think of God being abounding in it? Abundant in it, rich in mercy. I'm not aware of any place in the scriptures that speak of God being rich in wrath. He has wrath, no doubt. But the scriptures speak over and over again of God's rich, abounding, overflowing mercy. It's almost like God's mercy toward his people, toward his children, God's mercy comes most naturally to him because of Christ, of course, right? Right? Because of Jesus, it comes most naturally to him. And so repentance appeals to the abundant mercy of God, the finished, merciful work of Christ on our behalf. Think about this. It does not make ongoing repentance and confession unnecessary. Rather, it makes it possible and hope-filled. Imagine coming to God in confession, in honesty, unsure of his mercy in Christ. Well, the Bible is clear. We come to God based on his great mercy. It was because of God's rich mercy that we were saved when we were dead in our sins. Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5 says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. To approach God with a broken and contrite heart and see God as a harsh taskmaster driving us at the end of a whip is to see God very differently than David did. He saw him as merciful, as tender, as rich in mercy and compassion. Now to be sure, David didn't spare himself at all when describing and confessing his sin, which we're going to see shortly, and you and I shouldn't either. But let's set the record straight. God's mercy is greater than our deepest, darkest sin. Amen? Is that good news? His mercy is greater. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said in commenting on this. He said, men are greatly terrified in the multitude of their sins, but Psalm 51 gives us comfort For our our God has multitude of mercies. If our sins be in number as the hairs on our head, God's mercies are as the stars of heaven. And that's why David and you and I can be brutally honest about sin. Because of God's rich mercy. See, when there's kind of this defensiveness about dealing honestly about our sin, I mean, real sin, I'm not saying imaginary sin, but real sin, underneath it, it's this legal spirit rather than our hearts being bathed in the mercy and grace of God. So after appealing to the mercy of God, David confesses his sin with brutal honesty, And we see that in verses three to six. Repentance is brutal honesty and confession of sin. (coughs) Verses three to six, it says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. David has an acute understanding of the severity of his sin. I think this is sorely needed in our day. Not just outside the church. I think among Christians. Christians. David doesn't try to justify his sin. He doesn't try to cover it up. He's brutally honest and he confesses it, which is what confession is. Just being honest, just saying the same thing God says about our sin. That's what confession is. David doesn't come with a cool academic acknowledgement of his sin, but with a broken and contrite heart. Verse 17, which is the kind of sacrifice that pleases God. Thomas Watson, a Uh, Puritan said this. He says, until sin is bitter, Christ will never be sweet. Until our sin is bitter, Christ will never be sweet. So repentance includes a painfully honest, brokenhearted confession of sin. And not sin generally, but our own. So let's look at david's real painful honesty first notice david acknowledges just how deep sin is lodged in him verse 5 he says he was conceived in sin and born in sin sin is something deeper than just the outward actions it comes from a heart that is sinful This is what we call the original sin. We inherited Adam's sinful nature by birth, or by conception and birth. And David acknowledges that. It's been said that all are sinners, not because they sin, but rather all sin because they are sinners. In other words, we're born sinners, and that's why we sin. Now, of course, that's not the only thing that's true about Christians. We have a new heart. We've been given a new nature. But the old nature has not been completely eradicated. And we understand that. We know that. If you're honest with yourself about your own battles with temptation and with sin and with worldliness, we know that the old nature is not completely done away with. When Christ returns, praise God, it will be forever. But we still do battle against sin There's still the reality of indwelling sin. Next, David uses three words to describe his sin in in Psalm 51. He uses the word iniquity and the word transgression and the word sin. Of course, there's overlap, but it seems like he uses these three words deliberately. Iniquity is a kind of perversity or twistedness or a distortion of what should be. Transgression is to rebel against God's authority and law and To sin is to miss the mark. It's like a marksman with a bow and arrow aiming at the target and missing the mark. Next, and this is extremely important. David confesses the principal offense of sin. Sin is first and foremost and always first and foremost against God. You guys understand that? Sin is first and foremost and always first and foremost against God. Verse four says, against you and you only have I sinned. It's easy for us. If I we leave church and I start berating Alyssa, my wife, after church or as we're eating lunch together, it's easy for me to see that I have sinned grievously against my wife. What doesn't come nearly as naturally is I have first sinned grievously against God. First and foremost. Because you you might say, well, David surely didn't just sin against God. (laughs) I mean, he did have someone killed. He was king of Israel, right? I mean, he had responsibilities to the people of Israel. I think what David means here is compared to his sin against God, it's as though he didn't sin against anyone else. Though, of course, he did. Against you, you only have I sinned. This is something we need to learn something very important for us. If we go no further than the horizontal dimension in our sin, we're just playing games. First and foremost, sin is against God every time. Next, David calls his sin something that makes me squirm a bit. I'm just being honest. He says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Evil is a shocking word. Of course, we use it. But we use it in describing other people. <laughs> and things that other people do. Adolf Hitler was evil. What he did was nasty. That was evil to the core. Pol Pot was evil. Planned Parenthood, what they do is evil. Abortion is evil. That's Wrong! Evil! My pride? It's a weakness. (laughs) Right? My outburst of anger? It was a slip-up. My greed? Misplaced desire. My complaining? I've had a bad day. We're to call it what God calls it. That's what confession is. My pride and selfishness is evil. And so is yours. (laughs) My ingratitude to God is evil. My gossip and slander is wicked and evil. My rough anger is evil. You can hear sorrow and anguish in David's heart at offending God, can't you? It's someone who has had the deep and strangely precious work of God's Spirit in his heart to turn him back to God. This sorrow is good. It's good and it's necessary. It's a necessary part of true repentance that leads to life. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, godly grief or godly sorrow produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But a worldly sorrow produces death. So David teaches us just to be brutally honest because of God is so merciful. Christ died to cover all of our sins. We can just come before him honestly. Why would we, why would we want to do anything less before our God and Father? We want to be close with him, don't we? Amen. We want to be close with him. Third thing David teaches us is that repentance is pleading for God's, excuse me, for the effects of God's mercy. Verses 7 to 12, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. He pleads for God's deep work in his heart. Prayers like these, prayed honestly, God will answer. God, he he loves to hear his people pray like this. Generally, we see at least four things that David seeks for that we ought to seek for. First, cleansing from sin's pollution in our hearts. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.11, that he he says that, that the... Desires of the flesh, or worldly desires, wage war on our souls. That's what sin does. It wages war on our souls. So David prays this way. He says, Purge me, and I shall be clean. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Verse 10 Create in me a clean heart. I love 1 John chapter 1. It's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. And I think 1 John chapter 1 and Psalm 51 go together really well. Because John, 1 John, John teaches us to walk in the light and part of walking in the light is being honest with God. And when we walk in the light and we confess our sins to God, he is faithful and just to forgive us and continually cleanse us with the blood of Jesus. The second thing David prays for is nearness to God. I can't help but think that is the most devastating thing to him is that God has been distant. Maybe he didn't even notice it for quite some time, but all of a sudden he realizes, oh my goodness, God is very distant in my experience. And so he prays, cast me not from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. I don't think David's praying that God would keep him from being unsaved or lost forever, but rather praying about the anointing that he had been given, the anointing of the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and nearness to God's presence through the Spirit of God. The third thing David prays for is deep moral renewal. He says, and renew a right spirit within me. New American Standard, I, li- I like th- that translation better. It says, renew a steadfast spirit within me. He uses the word renew. The this, this steadfast spirit was once there, but David's dulled conscience has deadened his sense of duty and right and wrong and good and evil. And he seeks for Moral clarity and a renewal deep within. And finally, David prays for for joy, serious joy, great joy. Let me hear, verse 8, joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Unhappy Christians, not always but are often unhappy because they are weighed down with unconfessed sin, and consequently have a guilty conscience, and for good reason. David says, let the bones you have broken rejoice. Psalm 32, David describes before he came, came clean with God and confessed his sin, God's hand was heavy upon him. David felt it. He says, God, you have broken my bones. Let them rejoice at the abundance of your mercy. In verse 12, David prays, restore to me the joy Restore to me the joy of your salvation. I pray that often. I mean, not not only when I'm confessing confessing sin, but I just think, Lord, restore to me the deep joy of your salvation. You guys remember that when you, remember when either you were first saved, or maybe if you were saved at a very, very young age, maybe a little bit later on, just The explosion of joy over salvation became very real to you. Restore that, oh God. Restore that. The fourth thing Psalm 51 teaches us about repentance is repentance is humble. Included in repentance is a humble, happy resolve to obey. It certainly isn't a, oh Lord, I just need to get this off my chest and get this weight off my back, but I have no intention of changing. It is a firm, happy, humble resolve to obey. Verses 13 to 15. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. Humble, grateful, resolve to obey. Notice the word at the beginning of verse 13. Then... Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. When? After God has done this deep work in his heart. Right? After he comes to God, appeals for mercy, is honest about his sin, pleads with God, renew a steadfast spirit within me. He says, Then I will teach sinners and they will return to you. I can't help but think, I mean, David has a desire to see people converted and turned back to the God who is merciful that he loves. And I can't help but think, part of our, I'll say, part of my lack of enthusiasm about reaching lost people who are going to hell is that I haven't been gripped by the deep and rich mercy of God in Christ for me. David says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. And David sets his will to do what pleases God. He says, I will teach transgressors. My tongue will praise and declare. My mouth will sing. Of course, all David sets his heart and mind to do is dependent upon the mercy of God and the renewing work of God in his heart. But David's sober intention is to live for the glory of God and declare his righteousness and tell and sing, and excuse me, and sing and tell sinners about God's mercy. J.I. Packer, who just died a couple of weeks ago, said, true repentance has At its heart, a serious purpose of sinning no more, but of living henceforth a life that shows one's repentance to be full and real. I like that. A serious purpose of sinning no more. With God's help. No doubt, of course, but a serious intention and purpose of sinning no more. you and I are not saved by our good works or by our resolutions to obedience. We are saved, however, for good works and we are saved for resolutions to obedience. Ephesians 2.10, for we are the workmanship, right after saying we're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, For we are the workmanship of God created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 2 Thessalonians 1.11, Paul says, May God fulfill your every resolve for good and work of faith by his power. Your resolve for good and work of faith by his power. Psalm 51, let's just kind of recap here, is not a call for you and I to go on endless searches for sins that aren't even there. It's not calling us to a morbid kind of introspection that navel gazes constantly looking inward for hidden sins that might be there. I don't think that's our general problem. But that's not what it's calling us to. I would say, however, times of renewal historically from God with lasting fruit have been accompanied by a deep work of Holy Spirit conviction and cleansing. No doubt. I read this book um, about the, the Korean revival of the early 1900s. Presbyterian missionaries over there plowing the ground, praying, preaching the gospel, and then the Holy Spirit came, and the Holy Spirit came with Great power. And probably the principal evidence of the Spirit's work was gut-wrenching confession of sin. It was a mighty work of God. When I look at what's going on in the world, when I look at what's going on in the year 2020, knowing that God is sovereign over all of it, right? COVID-19 and the, 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 the real death toll that's mounting, the panic and fear that's accompanied it, the economic calamity, the political and social unrest, corrupt politicians of either stripe or all stripes, windstorms. The destruction of 10 million acres of farmland, God knew it was good. God knew? God was sovereign? And I would suggest God is obviously trying to get the attention of anyone who will listen. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. We need to humble ourselves mm-hmm. before God. Yes. The, the, one of the... One... Um, there's there's a few verses that are often shared at like political rallies. <laughs> of course, right-leaning political rallies. One of them is 2 Chronicles 7:14. If my people who are called by my name, blah blah, you know, you know that passage, right? What people don't quote is the verse right before it. When it says, when God says, when I send pestilence and wasting disease and droughts, if my people who are called by my name, Will humble themselves, confess their sins, turn from their wickedness, then I will hear from heaven. I mean, of, of course, our message to the world, to unbelievers, is repent and believe in Christ, no doubt. But you and I need to show them how. How to walk humbly before God, how to how to repent, how to go low before God. God, and live humble and low lives before the Lord. And so, I have three things I want to encourage you to do from this text and this message. First, memorize Psalm 51. (laughs) Just do it. Right? If, 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 the great cl- if many from the great cloud of witnesses in the past have done it and it was such an encouragement to them and so helpful for them in times of trouble and darkness, let's follow their lead. Let's memorize it. Let's write this text on our hearts and let the Spirit do his great work in our hearts through his word. Second, let's humbly pray like David prays in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, when he says, search me, O God, and try my heart. Excuse me, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. I don't think that is our only prayer to God, obviously. Obviously. But I think that's a great prayer to pray consistently. Lord, I can't see my heart. I, I don't know myself nearly as well as I think I do. I want to live honestly and humbly before you. I want to be clean before you. I want the renewing work and power of your spirit active in my life, so search me and know me. Try my heart, know my thoughts, and find and show me any grievous ways. Let's pray this and let's pray it with openness to the Spirit and His searching work. And then third, let's be open, humble, teachable, and sensitive to the Spirit and His conviction which would produce a hatred of sin, a deeper love for Christ and His mercy and would have glorious and wonderful and deep and lasting impact on your life and on the life of your children and your friends and your co-workers and this church and this community and beyond. Amen? Let's pray. Holy Father.